the National Archives podcast series at the instigation of the devil, suicide and its records, presented by Dr. Kathy Chater. In this talk, I can only hope to touch on what is a very, very complex subject. Um, it's surrounded for many people, both in the past and today, with guilt, with shame, with secrecy. Until 1961, suicide was actually illegal. So no wonder, along with the sort of feelings that people had, guilt that they hadn't realised what was going on, shame that it was you know, their family doing this, and therefore the secrecy that they kept. So it's not just the um, records that I'm going to be talking about, how to find out about it. I'm going to talk a bit about how the attitude to suicide changed over the centuries and what influence that will have on the records that were kept. If we start, however, with, um, if you like, the, the standard view of suicide. In 1805, an anonymous poem called The Suicide Prostitute was published. It told in many, many verses. It's not, I must warn you, it's not great poetry, it's not great art. But it tells in many verses the story of a 20-year-old country girl, seduced and abandoned, rejected by her parents, reduced to prostitution and disease in the city, and finally drowning herself, praying for pardon from God because she has offended him both by her way of life and by killing herself. So we see here the very typical view of the person who committed suicide, or perhaps it's the young Chatterton here, the death of Chatterton. Now, these po these, um, this view is a very typical literary view of suicide, that it's mainly committed by the young, often, if not mainly female, who have who've got themselves into trouble in some way, been rejected by those that they love, and also by society. Now, in fact, these kind of suicides are very, very rare. Over hundreds of, hundreds of years, the most likely person to commit suicide is a middle-aged married man who has children and who is in poor health, who is physically ill. So it's not surprising that suicides are often kept secret or they're hidden within families. The first inkling um, that people have, certainly after 1837, will be the inquest. So the first inkling that some of you will have comes in death certificates, which of course were only um, issued after 1837. You may find in the column for the cause of death, suicide. You may also find that the coroner has signed the... Uh, death certificate. If either of those happens, you will know that an inquest was held, and so you can start looking. Just a warning, of course, um, that the verdict of suicide wasn't often passed, and I'll talk about that a bit later. First of all, very briefly, a bit about inquests. I have done a whole talk on this, and it's available as a podcast on the um, National Archives site. But just um, to say how this relates, an inquest relates to suicide, the coroner's role initially um, was to investigate whether someone's death resulted in money to the Crown. 
And one of the ways that the Crown got money was that the property of murderers was forfeits to the Crown. Suicides were considered self-murderers. People who killed themselves, knowing what they were doing, doing it deliberately, were self-murderers. So their property was forfeit to the Crown. That, of course, leaves records, which I'll talk a bit further on. Um, Before 1837, it is more difficult to know whether an inquest took place. Um, You may see in burial registers that there was a burial by coroner's warrant. You may see um, what is obviously an inquest verdict in the burial register. It may be um, fell from a window. And that's not just the clerk telling you that the person fell from a window. That's a coroner's uh, verdict, the verdict of a jury. So you may find that. You may find um, the cause of death in day books, you know, the account books that were kept along with um, burial registers, the costs of each thing. They don't survive particularly well, but if you can find them, they're actually slightly more useful than burial registers. And one of the things that is quite important, again, to mention about burial registers, if they are records not of events, not of deaths, they are records of services. And if no service was held, there may not be a record in the burial register. And this is true. um, No service was held over suicides. Before 1823, they weren't even allowed to be buried in the churchyard. So you may find that your ancestor just suddenly disappears. There is no mention at all. If you can find a day book, which I say is the account book that goes with the burial register, or the church warden's accounts, those are worth investigating because they often give causes of death as well as the place of burial. On the north side, you will, for example, find um, those who weren't baptised. You will find people who were excommunicated, and you also find suicides. So um, it's worth having a look at those, and there's more information about this in my uh, podcast lecture. Where you do find a lot of information about um, inquests uh, and generally and suicides is after 1750 in newspapers. The British Newspaper Archive... Uh, One Place Millions of Stories, is a very, very useful um, resource for finding inquest records, for finding actually stories about your family full stop. This this story is actually from the Manchester Guardian. The Guardian still has its own um, records. It keeps those online, and you can pay to, um, you know, get a download a copy from there. So this particular one here is um, of a lad from London who was studying uh, in Manchester and he uh, took his own life. He committed suicide. He did this, it was agreed, brought on by overstudy. They said he had been working too hard. So the British uh, uh, newspaper archive is very, very good for all sorts of local records. But some, like the Manchester Guardian, the Times, still have their own archives separately. These are very, very good for reporting um, inquests of all kinds. And suicides have always been newsworthy, so they tend to be better covered than a lot of the other inquest records. Having heard all the evidence... 
the jurors had to come to a verdict about um, how the deceased met his or her death. And these are the verdicts that you may find that are related to suicides. The first are open or what's called narrative verdicts. I've got one here, a chap called Philip Zink. Um, he was the organist of the German Protestant chapel um, in London. Now, he, um, he had been recently discharged from his situation as organist. This had preyed on his mind and caused him to drink. He came home one night uh, drunk. They heard him come into the, his lodgings. He came home drunk. And then, a little while later, he fell from his bedroom window. And the jury say the deceased came to his death by falling out of a window, but what caused him to fall, there is not sufficient evidence to show. So this here is an open and narrative verdict. If any other information comes forward, um, could he have been pushed, for example? <laughs> you see, there is more evidence. This doesn't preclude um, further investigation. And it's also very often a tactful way of disguising suicide. I personally think that this guy probably did commit suicide. But you may well find, again with your own family, that jurors bring in a much more open verdict than we expect. You may find accidental death. Again, the jury might have decided that he fell from the window accidentally. So again, you may find um, a disguised suicide verdict there. If they did very firmly decide that the person had killed him or herself, then they had two further choices to make. If they decided that the person didn't know what they were doing at the time, like this last lad, temporary insanity brought on by too much study, then they said that he um, was not in his right mind. Non-compass mentis is the old verdict on this when he killed him or herself. If, however, the person knew what they were doing, they did this deliberately, they were what's called fellow de se, literally felons of themselves, self-murderers. So it was a very, very important decision that the jury had to come to. You may find, as I said earlier, that if you have a fellow de se suicide, they may not be in the burial register. Before 1823, they weren't even buried in the churchyard. Most were buried at a crossroads with a stake through their body. And this is a very, very old pre-Christian ritual. The aim of it was to prevent the unquiet spirit rising, leaving the body and coming back to haunt the living. And the idea of the crossroads was if the spirit did escape it would remain trapped at the crossroads because it wouldn't know which route to take. There's a thought next time you're waiting for the traffic lights to change somewhere. <laughs> so you see why sometimes in burial registers they do say that the person was buried without a service, but sometimes they're simply not there. So this is one of the things that may cause you, you know, to look a bit further. Historically, it's quite difficult to know um, what verdicts jurors brought in in medieval times, because not that many records survive. Some of them do. Most of them, pretty well all of them, that have survived are somewhere in the National Archives. 
the work that people have done, it does suggest that it appears that fellow to say self-murder was a very, very rare verdict. They mainly found that the person was unbalanced, didn't know what they were doing. And all that changed with the arrival of Henry VII. He needed money. After the Wars of the Roses, the crown was very, very impoverished. The law began to be applied much more strictly about suicides, and instead of leaving it to local level to decide, central government began to take a big hand in deciding who was and who was not sane at the time of the death. Coroners had to hand over their papers to the assizes, who then passed them on to the Court of King's Bench, which was the highest court in, in England and Wales. And then Henry VII also set up the Court of Star Chamber in order to review cases. And the Court of Star Chamber has got some wonderful cases in there of um, villages uh, undervaluing the property of suicides so that they wouldn't uh, you know, leave the family completely impoverished. You have accounts of um, whole villages being threatened with imprisonment if they didn't turn in the, the verdict that the Crown wanted. Uh, the Court of Star Chamber, it's the ceiling of it that gave it its name. The ceiling is actually, you can still see it, it's in Liso Castle on Merseyside. So the, the court was abolished. 1660, um, but it was basically used to extract money from people, and one of the ways of doing this, as I say, was to review suicide cases. It has been estimated um, by uh, Michael MacDonald and Terence Murphy in their book Sleepless Souls, which is really interesting on suicide in early modern England. They estimate that between 1485 to 1660, 95% of suicides were returned fellow de se, self-murderers. And one researcher who's looked at a lot of the cases on this estimates that up to half of these cases were people who were genuinely insane or were genuinely accidental deaths. So you can see that already the verdict of suicide, how it's applied, whether you decide if someone's sane or not, is subject to outside pressures, to social pressures, to bring in a certain kind of verdict. You can't even trust that as, you know, being the truth. In one case, for example, a witness said that the suicide had responded to questions like a mad old fool, as he was wont to do. But this carried no weight because the, cr the crown needed the money. And along with this need for money went religious reform, um, Henry VII's son, Henry VIII, brought in the Church of England, Reformation. Um, there was a very, very strong Puritan movement as well. And the growth of the Protestant movement had an effect on how people perceived suicide. I'm not going to go into all the sort of theological arguments because the Church has always had trouble explaining, for example, the death of Samson who pulled down um, you know, pillars to bring down the house on himself, so he effectively committed suicide. But if you want to pursue the theological arguments, there are, you know, many, many books on this. However, the Puritans um, took a very, very strong view of suicide, 
1637, the first book on the subject, the first full-length book on the subject, was published. This was by a chap called John Syme, who was a minister of Lee in Essex. And this, it's interesting, again, from the theological point of view. It has some interesting insights into depression, which was called uh, melancholy or melancholia then. But the general view of this, influenced by his religion, that suicide was almost the greatest sin that could be committed. It was seen to be the devil's work, so it was the worst thing that people could give in to. This actually um, survived in the form of words used in the fellow to say suicides right into the 19th century. This is um, an inquest paper on a, a prostitute called Elizabeth Richards who um, took poison. And she was found to be a fellow to say suicide. And this is the actual wording, the actual verdict here. <coughs> Not having the fear of God before her eyes, but moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil and of her malice aforethought. So that is a hangover, really, from Protestantism, from the um, 17th, the late 16th and 17th century. But things started to change towards the end of the 17th century. Partly this was uh, the way that society's belief, people moved away from the more extreme forms of religion. They started to believe, this is rather nice, they started to believe in happiness, the idea that people should be happy. This was something the Puritans really didn't believe at all. We're not here to be happy. But the, the mindset of people started to change. And also, by this time, the crown needed the money less. So things began to alter. Now this, um, from about the mid-18th century onwards, this is really, really bad luck for the genealogist. This is because coroner's records were less rigorously kept. They weren't, they didn't bother so much to pass them on to the Assizes and then to the Court of King's Bench. And the Star Chamber Court, as I said, was abolished in 16, uh, 1641. There are leaflets on the National Archives website about all these courts, so you can see, you know, inquest records in them. Um, you can also have a look at uh, things like petitions from the relatives, sometimes also the town of a fellow de say suicide. They would petition the Crown for the re uh, return of the property. Most of those petitions um, will probably be somewhere in the National Archives, but it's slightly more difficult to say that. Some of them may be county records, because um, the King's Armourer and the Sheriff of the County, people like that, had the responsibility of collecting suicide's property. So before 1750, you've got quite a good um, uh, chance of finding stuff in the National Archives. After that, as I say, things got a bit more casual. Also, as well as the, um, the, less, the, the authorities not keeping such a sharp eye on inquests and suicides, attitudes changed, especially in the 18th century. They began, as I say, to believe in happiness. So anyone who killed themselves was automatically regarded as insane. They were the same thing. 
only the insane would kill themselves. So they started to pass much more um, lenient verdicts. In fact, by the end of the 18th century, 95% of suicides were found to be insane. So you have almost the complete mirror image. Um, under, you know, when the Crown needed the money and the Star Court, it's 95% were fellow de se. Um, 150 years later, 100 years later, it's only 97% who are found to be, um, it's, it's a complete mirror image. They are found to be insane. People have not changed that much in that time, but society's attitudes and the attitudes of the government had changed. Now, theologians and lawyers disputed this, but ordinary people went on returning verdicts of insanity. For example, there's a case... Do you know um, The Diary of a Village Shopkeeper by Thomas Turner? This is a lovely book. It's a really interesting book about, you know, a shopkeeper in Sussex, all his doings. And he actually, at various times, sat on, on inquests. And there was one here where he was... Um, the inquest was on a young girl who was pregnant with an illegitimate child but had died after um, vomiting very, very badly. And so they carried out um, an inquest to see what she had taken, whether she had taken poison, whether she'd been given poison by the father of the child, who it turns out was was married to somebody else, and what had happened. Eventually, however... Um, they all agreed that the doctors both allowed this poor unhappy creature's death to proceed from a bilious colic so far as they could judge. Now, I can't believe that in an earlier, more censorious, more religious age, the fact that she was pregnant with an illegitimate child would not have brought... They would have brought in a much, much harsher verdict. But Thomas Turner calls her a poor unhappy creature... What they did do in the 18th century was they reserved the fellow de se verdicts for people they disapproved of morally. Um, there's one here, for example. Um, this is actually early 19th century, but it's very much of the, the attitude. Um, on Saturday afternoon, an inquiry took place at the Rising Sun Water Lane Hackney touching the death of Loris Johnson. Um, It appears from the evidence that the deceased, though married and the father of two children, had been paying his addresses to a young lady to whom he was on the point of being married with the consent of her friends. At a family party, he was exposed by the question, how do you do and how are your wife and children from another (laughs) guest? Well, he fled the house on that. I mean, he just ran away and he took poison. Now, the jurors who would all have had daughters who were in danger of adventurers like that, seducing their daughters, perhaps bigamously married them. They passed a verdict of fellow to say that he knew what he was doing and he killed himself. They didn't say temporary insanity because they were condemning his behaviour. You can get um, quite a lot about the um, attitudes towards suicides on this website, London Lives. For those of you who've got um, ancestors, it's 1690 to 1800. 
They've got all the surviving inquest papers from the City of London, City of Westminster, and I think a few from London Metropolitan Archives. There aren't many in, in LMA, but they do have a lot on here that you can um, investigate. Partly it will tell you, you know, if you have ancestors in, in, the, um, in the city. But also, it's just useful for having a look at the attitudes generally. We've looked at the kind of verdicts that jurors could pass and the implications of that. And now I want to look at, this is quite a difficult one, about the causes, why people actually kill themselves. I mentioned earlier that the most likely person to commit suicide over hundreds of years has been a middle-aged married man with children who is physically ill. So the causes... Um, the first one, actually, that the inquest jurors always looked for in the ones, the, the, the ones I've investigated is drunkenness. And there is actually, interestingly, until fairly uh, comparatively recently, drunkenness was legally defined as a form of insanity. It was called dementia affectata or acquired madness. And some verdicts of suicide, that someone killed themselves in delirium or in a fit of insanity, we would now actually classify as an accidental death while the person was drunk. But as I say, it had a legal definition of insanity caused by the drink. Um, other causes that I found... Um, as we say, poverty. And it's actually not so much poor people killing themselves, it's the reversal of fortune. People like that unhappy organist losing their job. And then ill health. And for many of our ancestors, poverty and ill health went together. If you were ill, you could not work. And there was very, uh, there were safety nets, there were the poor laws and all the rest of it, but for people who had a good standard of living, who had managed quite well to become ill and then be unable to work, was to plunge them into an abject poverty that they could not really understand. So yes, you do find a number of people um, killing themselves because of that. And then there's grief, the loss of a loved one, the death of a child, the death of a parent and perhaps the loss of, of um, you know, a job would all contribute to a feeling of grief. And then um, social shame. Interestingly, women, in my experience of looking at these, are relatively, seem to be relatively immune to social shame. You find a lot of men who um, were put into prison Again, if they had been reasonably um, well-to-do before, it was that sort of social shame of being locked up that caused them to kill themselves. Also, um, people who were um, homosexual and were not out to their family or their friends, if they were caught in a compromising position, one, the penalties were really, really severe on this, but two, the social shame of being caught seems to have um, prompted a few. And then, of course, you do have genuine insanity, which is as difficult to define now as it was in the past. It is very, very difficult to draw the line between someone who is just a teeny bit eccentric and someone who is completely bonkers. 
or someone who is psychotic. And you do, again, looking to them, there is psychosis, um, schizophrenia, paranoia, these things that cannot be um, cured or alleviated. They appear to be hardwired into the brain. Um, depression, uh, what's called uh, melancholia in the past, what we call depression now. Perhaps people bipolar disorder and things like that. And then, rather nicely, the, um, our ancestors, and this went on for a very, very long time, Sorry, here's the uh, causes, a summary of the causes. Our ancestors believed... Have you, any of you come across phrenology? Yeah. Well, it's a great... It's what's called a, a pseudoscience now. But the belief was that you could um, read a person's character and their mental health by the formation of their skull. The areas of the skull corresponded to particular qualities. And so you can, if you can find an early phrenologist's head that tells you all these sort of different things, it's where that expression, he had his bumps felt, came from, comes from. That you would feel a person's skull and then you could tell what they were like. It um, was first suggested by an Austrian chap called Gaul, or Gaul, in 1796. And by 1820, the Edinburgh Phrenological Society had been established. So they were very, very keen on this. It lost ground in the 19th century, but there are still a few people who sort of hold on to it as a popular science. So this was a very, very um, great thing for, for Victorian ancestors. What you do find very often is that a family would call in uh, an expert to give um, a reading of the person's brain or the person's skull to an inquest to prove that it was, you know, temporary insanity. Now, the causes, as I say, uh, are various. What I have noticed when doing work on this is that it's rarely, people rarely kill themselves for one reason. There's usually a combination. As I say, poverty and ill health go together. Perhaps um, something happens, the death of a child and then the death of another family member. It's quite rare to find one thing, an absolute, you know, the, the, the sole reason. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind as well is when you look for um, suicides in your own family is the methods that people use. People use methods that are familiar to them. Men cut their throats using the razors, the cutthroat, they were called cutthroat razors, that they shaved with because they were familiar with that. They felt comfortable with it. If women cut their throats, which they did less often, they would use kitchen knives. They didn't use their husband's razor, which is quite an interesting thing. People who hanged themselves, men would use their belts, Women often use their shawls. And you have uh, poisons. Poisons were almost not quite class-based, but the well-to-do, the middle classes, the upper classes, generally took laudanum, which was used as a sort of the equivalent of sleeping pills and also as a painkiller. You find that servants very often killed themselves using arsenic 
because it was a rat poison. That was what they would use um, you know, around the house. Or they would use oxalic acid, which was used for cleaning things. It was a cleaning fluid. So this is quite um, an interesting thing to look at because it may, you may come to suspect that an ancestor of yours did not commit suicide like the inquest record said because it was an unlikely method of suicide. So you have to ask yourself, were they murdered? Drowning was also quite common. And a study of um, people who drowned themselves in the Victorian period found that um, even those living by the riverside only drowned themselves if they worked on the river in general. The craftsmen who lived next to the river would use the tools of their trade, which again is quite an interesting um, insight into this. Now, I suspect that some drownings were actually cries for help that went wrong. Um, we've got an article, a piece here from a newspaper, attempted suicide. On Saturday, soon after midday, a young woman aged 20 walked down the steps on the Lambeth side of Westminster Bridge and stood musing at the water's edge for several minutes. A waterman inquired if she wanted a boat, to which she made no reply, but suddenly jumped into a wherry, from that to two more which lay alongside each other, and from the third she sprang into the river. The waterman on the spot ran to her assistance and succeeded in rescuing her. Um, various things, she was taken to the workhouse. In the course of the evening, she stated that her name was Mary Grimsby, the daughter of a tradesman in Windmill Street, Lambeth, and that her only reason for the rash attempt was having quarrelled with her mother. Now, you can see she flung out of the house in a fit of temper. She went down to the river, and that part of the river, you could actually walk across it, that there were so many you know, boats there. So she was doing this very, very publicly in a place where she would be rescued. So what we have here is a cry for help, uh, you know, wanting attention, wanting to show her family how unhappy she is. Most of these people, as I think this girl was, were taken before the magistrate who told them very sternly to pull themselves together and then found some member of the family or somebody who would be responsible for them, which was a fairly sensible thing to do, even considering um, suicide was illegal at that time. So again, you have to think, did my ancestor um, attempt to drown themselves as a cry for help? Did they take just a small amount of poison to make themselves sick? that something went wrong. We can never actually be fully sure of people's motives, of what they intended. The other interesting thing that I've found is that most studies of suicide look at what people have in common with each other. You know, all the people who, for example, tried to drown themselves, all the people who took poison, what did they have in common with each other? What were the circumstances that led up to the suicide? I think a more interesting approach might be to look at how they differ from those who do not kill themselves. After all, huge numbers of people now and in the past suffered poverty, ill health, social shame, grief, bereavement, all sorts of things without actually wanting to kill themselves. One of the main factors, of course, is the personality. 
1830, two noblemen were in the news about the same time because of their wives' infidelities. This is Lord Ellenborough, and this is his wife. His wife left him for another man. Lord Ellenborough responded by divorcing her. Um, Lord Graves, his wife was widely rumoured, only rumoured, to be having an affair with one of the um, sons of George III. All these cartoons were published about him, and he killed himself. There are other parallels between them. Both men were socially humiliated by having these cartoons drawn. There were others about Lord Ellenborough as well. Um, Lord Ellenborough's only son and heir died at the age of two, just as the divorce proceedings began. Lord Graves has suffered a long period of illness. Both men were MPs, and their troubles were used by their political enemies. However, where they, difficult, where they differed was in their personality. Lord Ellenborough was widely held to be an arrogant man, whereas Lord Graves was amiable. So was it Lord Ellenborough's toughness, his nastiness, his anger that helped him survive? Was Lord Graves a nicer character, a weaker character, as they would have said then? So how much does personality make the difference? There's another factor that um, I don't think has been as much studied as many of the others that have been done in the, the things that I've looked at, and that's the, the um, brain chemistry. And our ancestors may just have been looking in the wrong place. They were assuming that the skull reflected what was underneath. But actually, what is underneath, the biochemistry of the brain, may be where some of the answers lie. Now, the biochemistry of the brain has recently started to be studied in much more depth. Scientists have found that there are a number of chemicals that can affect how we feel. As you would guess, there is an American self-help book about this, Meet Your Happy Chemicals. <laughs> but these are the four chemicals that can affect your mood. Um, serotonin, for example... Um, a recent study of people who killed themselves found that they did have a very low level of serotonin in their brain, which is associated with depression. And in some cases, lack of serotonin can be drug-induced. And we think of our ancestors all happily taking laudanum, which was, you know, a tincture of opium, to sleep. That kind of been doing them a huge amount of good. So perhaps some of that led to depression. Also, there are other factors to do with this, dietary factors. We can't assess what our ancestors' diet was like in the past because we don't know about individuals, but we can make guesses from the kind of you know, recipes that we see, the sort of food that people ate. And tritophan, which is found in poultry, fish and peanuts, is synthesised in the brain as serotonin. So a lack of tritophan, uh, because of a poor diet, leads to depression. A lack of vitamin B12 also leads to depression, and it's found in leafy green vegetables. Um, studies in the diet of the poor show that these were often lacking, especially in winter. The rich 
would have stuff grown. They would have fruits and things grown in their greenhouses. But the poor had to rely on what could be um, grown then. And in winter, leafy vegetables were lacking. Interestingly, suicides in the past were much higher in spring. It was assumed they would be high in winter, but in fact they were higher in spring. After a long period, without fresh vegetables would have led to a great um, lack in people and led to depression. There's also a genetic link. Um, There appear to be some people who are more susceptible to a lack of B12 than others. And so this might explain some of the hereditary uh, links with depression and suicide that you've often find. You do find that there are um, links within the family, that there are the big discussion, of course, of nature and nurture, But there are, if you find one suicide in a family, it's unlikely to be the only one, in my experience. And interestingly, alcohol reduces the level of magnesium in the brain, which also causes depression, and alcohol also destroys the body's supply of vitamin B12. So you can see that the jurors in the past who always asked, was he drunk, did he habitually drink, weren't so wrong they realised that that does lead to depression and therefore makes people more likely to kill themselves. So these biochemical factors are only being to uh, be studied in any great depth. They can't be sort of fully verified historically, but they do give us some sort of clues and ideas. And there's another factor connected with diet in the past that I think we need to think about when looking at deaths. Um, among our ancestors and that's the adulteration of food many people in the past must have suffered a low level of poisoning from the food they ate Um, the first half of the 19th century saw both the growth of adulteration with a number of quite horrifying additions in all kinds of foods and also exposure of this Um, this book, this is the fourth edition of the fourth book looking at how food was adulterated. Uh, It was actually published 1820. 1820. And we have here a cartoon from Punch. Uh, Nux vomica is strychnine. Uh, Sand, red lead, was put into foods to give them a nice colour. I'm not absolutely sure what bull arm is. Um, Plaster of Paris was put into flour to make it white and to make bread look white as well. There are other things. Uh, they use lead-based colour. Copper arsenate was put into pickles to give them a nice colour. Um, and there were all sorts of things in beer and, beer and tea that you really, really don't want to think about, OK? Milk being watered down was just a minor, minor thing, although, of course, the water that it was being done with was usually very, very dirty. So anyway, it wasn't until, even though this book was published in 1820, it wasn't until 1855 that it was investigated by a government select committee and legislation began to be passed in 1875 onwards. So, you see, this kind of thing really must have caused a low level of ill health among a lot of people, especially the poor. So they were constantly ill, not feeling quite right, you know, suffering, not 100%. And so these 
some of these things were actively poisonous. They must have affected people's moods. So again, we need to consider this as a factor in our ancestors' deaths and our ancestors' suicide. Now, I'm not suggesting that all suicide and insanity can be traced to what people ate. What I'm saying is that suicide is a far more complex subject than I can fully explore in an hour. To summarise all of this, if you find a suicide in your family, there are a number of factors to consider beyond the simple, you know, bleak fact so-and-so killed himself either in a fit of temporary insanity or was a self-murderer, a fellow to say. The things you need to consider are what were the knowledge and beliefs about insanity and its causes at that time? What was the moral climate of the age? Was the jury passing some kind of judgment on the person's social life rather and their behaviour rather than what actually happened? And also to think about what your ancestor might have, how the treatment that your ancestor might have received for a long-term illness. Might that, the substance that were used and the things that they were eating, could they have aggravated um, illness or led to depression? And as I say, I found that suicide is rarely for one reason. It's the result of a culmination of a number of personal experiences and social factors. So I hope I've given you not just an indication of the kinds of records that you might be able to find and where they're found, but also the various possibilities, the social possibilities to explore if we find a suicide in our family. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 25th of July 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.